Good morning. My name is Dustin. I'm on staff here at South Point, and I am really excited to be starting a new series with you guys this morning. So we are continuing on in our Origins year-long series through the book of Acts, but as it so happens, where we are in the book of Acts, we're actually reaching this turning point in the narrative, and we're actually going to be calling this new series Threats, and I'll tell you why. Because for the rest of this book, for the rest of the book of Acts, we are going to witness Jesus' followers filled with the Holy Spirit boldly proclaiming that Jesus is Messiah, Jesus is God, Jesus not only died for all of our sins, but he actually raised back to life as Savior of the world, which we celebrated last week on Easter. And what that means for us now is that not only can we be free from all of the guilt and shame and consequences of our sins, but actually because of Jesus, we have this promise of an abundant life both here and now and for eternity. And these Jesus followers in the book of Acts, they are on fire about this. Like, they want to tell everyone about this. There's this movement starting. There's this fire that's spreading. And the spiritual and physical landscape of the world that they are living in is changing because of the restorative and resurrection power found in the blood of Jesus Christ. We've got to tell everyone about this. And I'm going to tell you something about this good news, this message of who Jesus is and what he's done and what it all means. I'm going to tell you something about it. When it comes to the message of who Jesus is and what he's done, there are always going to be people who hear this message and praise God in response. There are always going to be people who are receptive to the message, people who acknowledge the ways in which they are broken and need a Savior, and then they cling to that Savior for dear life because they understand that not only are his promises true, but that he is that good. But, but on the other side of the spectrum, there are also always going to be people who are adamantly offended at the suggestion that they are broken and, need and in need of saving. There are always going to be people who, despite the evidence of their brokenness being written all over their lives, will refuse God's love and will actually seek to undermine, embarrass, persecute, harass, abuse, and even kill anyone who would proclaim such a thing. There will always be people for whom the gospel will be adamantly offensive. And, and as we read through this next portion of Acts, this newborn church is about to come face to face with a lot of these types of people. And we're calling this series threats because although these people pose absolutely no threat to the kingdom of God, understand that God's will, his desire, his mission, it cannot be defeated. They're no threat to that. But although they pose no threat to the kingdom, there are going to be moments in your life when you are facing substantial opposition. And I believe that there's so much that we can draw from this early church and how they respond to these threats that's beneficial to us in our relationship and pursuit of Jesus today. And so we're going to be in Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 5. If you have your Acts journals, you can get there. Uh, or if you have your Bible, if not, we'll have it on the screen. But Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 5, and to give you a little bit of context, what has just happened in the previous passage, before this passage we're about to read, is that Peter, the Apostle Peter, has just performed this miraculous healing. In the power of Jesus' name, he, is, he has healed someone who hadn't walked in 40 years, and they are now walking. And after this miraculous healing, Peter gives his second ever sermon, his second message about who Jesus is, and what Jesus has done. And in response to his second sermon, thousands more people have accepted Jesus as their Savior. But because of the offensiveness of their message, 
and the impact that it's having on the community, the religious leaders in Jerusalem have actually had Peter and John, another one of the apostles. These religious leaders have had Peter and John arrested. And in this moment we're about to read, they have brought Peter and John into their presence, and in front of all these rulers and religious authorities, they are going to question them. And man, I love this passage. I encourage you to lean in as we read this. This is Acts chapter 4, starting at verse 5. It says this. It says, On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, when they had set Peter and John in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Talking about this miraculous healing. By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people, people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, that by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so Peter says, it's Jesus. It's only Jesus. Stop fooling yourself. Stop misleading others. It is only Jesus. This is Peter's message. And it says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened, for the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. That's a lot of scripture, but there is so much good stuff in there. And this is one of my favorite scenes in all of the Bible. This is an amazing scene, and we could probably spend months like sitting in this and unpacking it, but, but what I want to do this morning is I want to place all of our focus this morning on the gospel. I want to place all of our focus this morning on the gospel, and the way we're going to do that is by using this passage that we just read, and we're going to look at three things that the gospel does to a human being after it saves them. And so these three things that the gospel does to a person are in addition to the fact that it erases your broken past and enters you into this earth-shattering, amazing relationship with God that will last for all eternity. These three things that the gospel does to a person are in addition to that. And so the first comes, or the first one comes in verse 13. 
when it says this. It says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Which shows us the first thing the gospel does in addition to saving you, and that is the gospel makes you different. The gospel makes you different. 2 Corinthians, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Do you not see this illustrated in verse 13? When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common. They were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I don't know how much you know about Peter and John. You may know a little bit if you've been around church for any period of time, but Peter and John were nobodies. They were literally nobodies. They had nothing to offer. They had grown up, they'd failed the test to be disciples of any other rabbi in all of Israel. They'd been relegated to the grunt work of the day, fishing for hours upon hours just to get by. They'd had their chance to be important and they had blown it. Even after Jesus chose them, even after spending three years with Jesus in the flesh and watching all the miracles and seeing everything that he did, they scattered and ran when he was arrested and Peter denied that he even knew who Jesus was because he was so afraid of being killed too. Their reputation was that they were nobodies, they were uneducated, they were common, useless. And now, months later, they stand before these highly educated, clever, powerful people and they are literally blowing their minds because they're so bold and so confident and so sure. They are literally completely different men. If you don't believe me, go back and read about them in the Gospels and read about them now. These are not the same people. The old is gone, the new has come. Because the sacrifice of Jesus, his blood, it doesn't just wash away your sins, it washes away the old you. Jesus' sacrifice, his blood, it doesn't just wash away your sins, it washes away the old you, the broken you, your biggest enemy. I mean, you are your biggest enemy. You know that, right? I mean, who, is, who has lied to you more than you? Who has broken more promises to you than you? I mean, who sabotaged your life more than you. We have to do something about this broken, corrupt you, but we can't. And so Jesus said, I will. Jesus died so that the old you could die and you could become the person God truly wants you to be. That's why the Bible says, I've been crucified with Christ. The old me is dead and gone. The new me has come. I remember when my wife first said yes to Jesus. I was in the Navy and we were living in Florida away from her family and uh, when my wife met Jesus, the transformation was so significant that her sister could not wrap her mind around it. She said things like, you're not you anymore. You're so different. And my wife said something to the effect of, well, who I was before actually wasn't me. This is who I was always supposed to be. And what's amazing is that I got to also witness my wife's Sister, say yes to Jesus and undergo the same transformation. This will make you new. Now, that's not to say that uh, this is a one and done thing. Understand the old you will always try to fight to take its place again. 
The enemy will always try to lie to you and tell you that you're not really different. Like your past will try to rear its ugly head. But the truth is, if you fix your eyes firmly on Jesus, he will continue to make you different. And he will continue to remind you of who you are because of who he is. And maybe you're dying for that type of transformation. Maybe you've come to a place finally in your life where you are tired of being the biggest enemy of your life and Jesus is inviting you, come to me and I will show you who you really are. Or or maybe you've experienced it, maybe you've said yes to Jesus and experienced this transformation and experienced his grace but you've lost your focus or you took your eyes off Jesus and the old you has fought to take its place again and your heart's broken because of it. Well, Jesus is inviting you, come to me and I'll remind you who you really are. The gospel will make you different. The Savior, this Jesus, he will erase the old and usher in the new. And so Peter and John, they are visibly different. These authorities, there's, these religious leaders, they can see it, they can feel it, and so they have to figure out what to do. And so they send Peter and John away, and it says this. After they sent Peter and John away, they got together saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Did you see it? The the gospel not only saves you, it not only makes you different, the gospel makes you dangerous. The gospel makes you dangerous because you see, as soon as Peter starts proclaiming these words, things start to change. The status quo has been challenged. The current operating system has been questioned. Now, understand this. They're not dangerous because they're going to hurt anyone or like strong arm anyone into submission. Can we please let that go as a community already? There are so many Christians right now who are waging war on culture. And let's face it, culture's gone a little crazy, but What are you so afraid of? Christians are out on the streets trying to stop people from sinning. They're trying to get people to change their ways and and they've slowly become this army of people who are only known for the things that we're against. So much so that people don't even know what we're for anymore. Sometimes I wonder if these Christian warriors even remember what we're for anymore. And the thing that we're for, the gospel, the message of who Jesus is and what he's done, that is what makes you dangerous. Not your determination, not your morality, not your ability to get other people to be moral, not your ability to get certain laws passed, not your ability to get certain shows canceled. It's the gospel that makes you dangerous. The gospel is where all the power comes from and the gospel is what we stand on. And I think if we trusted that, if we really trusted that, we'd be telling our friends and neighbors about the gospel or posting on our social media about the gospel instead of just posting why people shouldn't be watching this movie or they shouldn't be eating at this restaurant or they shouldn't be marrying this person or they shouldn't be wearing that thing. I don't care what you're against. What are you for? What are you for? You know, you you don't see Peter and John in here threatening 
these authorities or leaders are adding commentary about the culture and why it needs to change and how they're going to pass these laws because if we can get everyone to live more biblically, that'll fix things. No. They don't issue a single threat. And yet, these authorities sure seem threatened by the message, don't they? Why? Because the gospel is dangerous. Why is the gospel dangerous? Because the gospel reveals our deep-seated need for God. The gospel reveals that we can't fix anything, and the gospel demands that we get off of the throne and we allow God to take his rightful place there instead. And in the world that Peter and John lived in, and the world that we live in, that is a dangerous message because people love being their own God. People love being able to do whatever they want to do, regardless of the destruction that it brings to their own lives, to other people's lives. People love sitting on the throne. I mean, the messaging is all around. You do you. Be your own hero. Satisfy yourself. Live your truth. You're perfect just the way you are. But the gospel comes in and says, you're broken. And there's only one truth. And you couldn't be farther from perfect. Only God is perfect. And you can't satisfy yourself. Only God can truly satisfy you. And you can't fix anything. Only God can fix anything. And you make for a terrible God. And so why don't you step away from the throne because you're literally killing yourself. There's a better way. Do you know how badly people want to be their own God? They will literally ignore evidence right in front of their face. I mean, look at these, these leaders. They say, the miracle is real. We can't deny it. We've never seen anything like it. There's actually something to all of this Jesus stuff. It's actually real. How do we stop it? What? You just witnessed a miracle that God is real and that Jesus is God and there is evidence to suggest that all of this is true, and instead of embracing it and embracing the free gift and submitting to God, you want to stop it? Why? Because people love being their own God. Listen to me, you put so much pressure on yourself to say the perfect words and to sculpt your messaging in such a way that connects with someone perfectly, but there are going to be people who look a miracle dead in the face and don't want anything to do with it because it means they don't get to be God anymore. There are going to be people who are going to be offended by this no matter how perfectly you present this to them because the gospel is dangerous. There are massive implications for what Jesus did on the cross. Massive implications and as amazing and fulfilling and perfect as believers have found these implications to be, the idea of surrender both terrifies and enrages some people. And so the world may hate you. But if the world's going to hate you, at least make sure it's because you're experiencing the real gospel and the real transformative power of Jesus Christ. Because if they only hate you because you're constantly telling them they're evil or corrupt or they're sinners or they need to change. If that's why they hate you, well, you're not a martyr or a hero. You're just wasting your time. And you're not dangerous. You're a fool. You can't fix anything. One day, everything 
will be fixed. But it's not going to be because you felt really strongly about it or took action to try to change the world. One day everything will be fixed because the king is going to come back and fix it. You're not God. You're never going to be. But some people don't want to hear that, and so the gospel is dangerous. And even with the evidence of the power of Jesus being real, these authorities, they refuse it. And so they make their decision, and they bring Peter and John back in, and it says this. So so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And so they tell Peter and John, this is an official order, they tell them, stop talking about it. And Peter and John politely say, never. Never. Which shows us that the gospel not only saves you, the gospel not only makes you different, it not only makes you dangerous, but the gospel makes you a witness. The gospel makes you a witness. You know, we put the apostles, we put Peter and Paul and the rest of them, we put them up on this pedestal like Christian superheroes. But if you actually look closely at their lives, if you actually look at their lives, it really comes down to one thing for them. They cannot get over the fact that God loves them so much and would save somebody like them. They can't get over the fact that God would die for them like it blows their minds. And they never get over it. And they never take it for granted. They're just leveled by it. And it becomes the thing that defines them. And so my question then becomes, is it the thing that defines you? If you've said yes to Jesus, and you've experienced this transformation from death to life, and you've gotten this wave of reality and truth about who Jesus is and what he's done for you and what that means for you, is it, is it the thing that defines you? Because this, this lunacy, this craziness of God being apparent and obvious and people still wanting nothing to do with him, well, that hasn't changed. You know, there's, there's evidence for God. The universe in itself is, is an impossibility. Everything can't come from nothing. Go find scientists trying to dance around that and try to explain it away, but no one will take it head on. The universe is itself a miracle. There's evidence. I mean, spend enough time in nature and you'll begin to get a sense of it. Spend enough time around those who have been saved by grace and you will get a sense of it. Spend enough time reading Scripture and taking a deep dive into who Jesus is and you will get a sense of it. But regardless of that, there will always be those like these authorities who will dismiss any evidence and fight to silence anyone who would dare to make much of who Jesus is. The world's just never going to roll with you on this. There's always going to be tension. There's always going to be friction. There's always going to be those who want you to shut your mouth. Right? Hasn't that become the narrative? Believe whatever you want to believe as long as you just keep it to yourself and leave me out of it. You want to believe in Jesus? Good for you. Just keep it to yourself. And what have so many Christians said in response? You're right. I'm sorry. I don't want to freak people out. I don't want to push people away. I don't want to... Believe whatever you want to believe, but keep it to yourself. 
can I tell you something? That's not only unbiblical, that is anti-biblical. There is no such thing as keeping this to yourself. You've been called to share this. You've been called to be a messenger. And so over the course of your life as a Jesus follower, you are going to constantly find yourself in a place of sitting between the desire to be liked and accepted by those around you or being someone who embraces this gospel message and builds their life on it because very frequently you are not going to be able to have both. And let's just be completely honest here. Like, we want people to like us. We want to be accepted. We want to be in. And if you're like, well, I don't care if people like me. Well, then people don't like you. Like, don't worry, bro. We, we don't. Like, no one wants to be willingly marginalized or villainized or despised or left out. No one wants to be viewed as some kind of moron or spiritual nutcase. We've seen these people on the news or on social media. We don't want to be that. No one wants to be the guy that's like quick to bust out anointing oil every time someone sneezes. Like my allergies are just acting up like, praise God, brother, let's hit you with this. We don't want to be that. We don't want to be perceived as that. Even more so today in an environment where we are being painted as bigots. We're being painted as intolerant. We are being painted as those who hate we become afraid to own the message of the gospel for fear of being labeled. I mean, be honest with yourself. You don't hesitate to share this because you're afraid it's going to push people away from Jesus. You hesitate to share this because you're afraid it's going to push people away from you. There's this draw to have people like us to want to belong, and there's nothing intrinsically wrong with that desire. Unless, hear this, unless that desire makes you sell out. Unless that desire turns you into a person who no longer stands on the power and promises of God, but instead turns you into a person who's constantly trying to give Jesus a makeover. Trying to make Jesus more palatable to those who cannot accept him for who he is. The Bible addresses this and in John 12. It says, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. These people believed. They believed like some of us believe. But when it came time to own it, when it came time to share it, they couldn't because of the social implications of being someone who would make much of who Jesus is. And if that's you, I'm not judging you, and I'm not going to ask you to try harder or make yourself bolder. You can't. If you could, you would have already done it by now, but what a feeling. What a feeling to be embarrassed or ashamed or afraid to speak about the most amazing thing that has ever happened to you. How heartbreaking. But you can't make yourself more bold. You can't make yourself fiery and fearless. And so, what's your move? What is our move as a community? Well, it's suggested in the third point. The gospel makes you a witness. The gospel. And, and so, what's your move? Immerse yourself 
in who Jesus is. Don't try to work on yourself. Let him work on you. That's what all this comes down to. And so many people, so many believers are just absolutely missing it right now. And and they think they invite Jesus into their lives and now it's time to get to work and start fixing my junk and start fixing all the world's junk and start making myself into this good witness because I'm a Christian and that's what we're supposed to do. But you've left the Savior on the shelf. And you've started trying to do this on your own and you can't. And so you're exhausted and you're frustrated and you're questioning yourself and you're questioning God and you're questioning exactly what it is that you even said yes to. And so let me remind you of what we believe. God is amazing and powerful and loving and and holy. God's perfect. But your predisposition to sin, your desire to sin that was passed along to you from every single one of your ancestors, that desire, that sin left you in a place that was completely incompatible with God because your holy, your unholiness and God's holiness, they couldn't coexist. And so to give you an analogy, you were in chains and awaiting trial in which the evidence against you was so overwhelming that you would have inevitably been put to death. But Jesus... Jesus walked into the cell and he took the chains off of your wrists and he put them on his wrists and he said, you're free to go. You received a full pardon because God is merciful and loving and you can't earn it and you can't deserve it and the only way that you can receive that grace is by allowing Jesus to take your cuffs off. You say yes and you let him set you free. Just like that? Yeah, just like that. And when you do, he changes you from the inside out. He transforms you. Your desires, your priorities, your perspective, what brings you peace, what brings you joy, what fulfills you, it's changed. And if you've said yes to him, do you remember that day? Do you remember when you were so excited and so thankful and so full of joy and so on fire, like you just needed to tell someone about this because I want you to experience this. That's how the gospel makes you a witness. When it puts you in that place of being so excited and so thankful and so full of joy and so on fire. And so how how do you get back there? How do you get back there? There's really only one way. You have to spend time with Jesus. You have to spend time with Jesus. Sounds simple. It is simple. He is it. Jesus is everything. We cannot stray away from Jesus. We cannot place the focus on anything other than Jesus. And the moment we do is the moment when things begin to fall apart. It has to be Jesus. It has to be. And so I'm not asking you to save yourself. And I'm not asking you to make yourself different. I'm not asking you to make yourself dangerous. I'm not even asking you to make yourself a witness. I am just asking you to commit, to seriously commit to simply spending time with this Jesus. Because I believe in him so much. 
I believe in him so much that I believe that simply by spending time with him that you will be changed. I believe that just by spending time with him that we will be changed. I believe that. And I'm asking you to believe it too. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for who you are. We are in awe of who you are. God, I pray that we're a community that models the same perspective and the same mindset that we see in Peter and Paul and the other apostles, that we are just blown away that you would love people like us. Not only would you love people like us, but you would die for a community of broken, messed up misfits like us, that you know us completely and would die for us to have a relationship with us. God, I pray that that defines us. I pray that it defines how we live, how we identify ourselves, how we love other people. I pray that it just, that that becomes our identity. And I'm sorry for all the moments that that has not been the case for me. God, I pray that we are a community who makes much of who Jesus is. I pray that we're a community that puts Jesus on the pedestal, that makes Jesus the foundation that, spot, that shines a spotlight on Jesus in such a way that no one can walk into this place without hearing the amazing news of who you are and what you've done. And I pray for anyone in this place who has not experienced the transformation and the power and the beauty of saying yes to you. God, I pray you're speaking into their heart right now. I pray for anyone who has said yes to that and strayed far away from it. God, I pray that you are continually drawing us to yourself. I pray that your Holy Spirit's in this room drawing us closer to who you are, making more clear in our hearts and in our minds what all this means. God, I pray that you transform us. I pray that we stop trying to transform ourselves. I pray that we stop trying to transform society. I pray that we give up the fights that we cannot win and we start embracing the fights that you've already won, God. I pray that that's who we are. And I pray as we walk out of this place that you stick to us, that you make us witnesses. There are inevitably people in each of our circles who need to hear this. And I pray that they see this fascination, they see this transformation, this complete fulfillment in your people, and it draws them closer to you. I love you for who you are, praise you for everything you've done, saving a sinner like me. Praise your holy name. Amen.